Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Retroist. I really wanted to see Tron. I'd heard about it. I was kind of nutty for computers even at an early age, and I loved Disney, so I knew all about this movie that was coming out. Any bit of information I could get on it, I would gobble up. Problem is, the people who usually took me to the movies, my mother or my sister, were not all that into the idea of Tron. Now, I knew I'd probably get to see it eventually, but I wanted to see it the weekend it opened. So I decided at that point to take matters into my own hands and take myself to the movies. The problem is, is that I wasn't allowed to go to the movies by myself. To get there, you kind of had to cross a major road, four-lane road, and there was also a highway to get through, and all sorts of obstacles that my mother wouldn't have appreciated. But I was determined to see this film, so I took as much money as I can get my hands on. It cost $2 to go to the movies. I think I was able to get about 4 or $5. And one morning, I said I was going to go play with my friends, and instead, I went to go see Tron. There are catwalks that go over the major highway. I had never gone on them by myself. I did that for the first time. Made it to the other side of town. I started wandering through blocks that I'd never seen before. I finally come to this big road. Now the problem is, is that there was no light where I was, and I didn't know where the light would be. I wasn't familiar with walking on this side of town. I wasn't familiar with even driving. I don't think I'd ever paid attention at that point. But here I am, four lanes away from the movie theater that's right on the other side. I was stuck. Every time I'd try to go, I'd see cars and I'd panic and run back. I walked 100 yards down this way, 100 yards down that way, trying to see if there was a place I could cross safely or if there was a light, and there was nothing. I should say that I was a bit traumatized because we had a dog as a kid that got hit on that highway that I had crossed over on the crosswalks, and probably about six months earlier, I had seen a next-door neighbor get hit by a car right in front of my house, so I was terrified of getting hit by cars. So I went back and forth and back and forth, Meanwhile, I'm thinking, what if somebody spots me? Like, what if a friend of my mother sees me and reports back that I'm trying to get across this road? So I'm panicking and hiding in the pine trees near the road, waiting to get across. I walked maybe a quarter mile down the road, and I finally found a light. It took about five minutes. It turned, and I booked across the road. I cut back, and I'm skipping, running. I'm so happy. Here I am going to see this movie. I didn't even care who saw me at this point. I was so close to it. I get to the theater, and the first show wasn't for four and a half hours. Nowadays, it's much easier to find out when a movie starts just by going to the internet. Back then, you had to call, or you had to check the newspaper. I had done none of those things, so I waited. The movie theater was standalone. I think there was a hotel nearby, a hospital, but nothing else. So for four and a half hours, I just sort of walked around the building. At about two hours in, the movie theater opened. I was kind of getting excited, but there was nobody at the box office. I saw a guy starting to clean up and stuff, and I kept walking around in circles. Eventually, it got closer, and I saw that the box office was going to open. But before the guy opened the movie theater, he stopped me and said, What are you doing here, kid? I said, Well, I'm here to see Tron. He said, Well, where's your adult? This movie's rated PG. It's hard to go back in time to capture the emotions of being a kid, but I can tell you this, I was devastated at that point. I had invested so much into this and had built this movie up so much in my head and in the last four and a half hours that I couldn't even imagine not seeing it. Of course, what I didn't realize at that point is that the guy was messing with me. 
I could completely go see the film, but I didn't know that. And I was destroyed. And I think he saw that because he turned to me and said, well, you know what? This will be our secret. Not only did I get to see Tron that day, but I saw it for free. The guy let me in. So with a windfall, I had popcorn, soda, and milk duds and got to see a movie that would stick with me the rest of my life. I'm really glad because my family hates Tron. I cannot get them to sit through it, so I imagine if I did not go that day, I never would have gotten to see it. Now, I'm sure I probably still would have wound up working in computers, but I can tell you this, I probably would not have been as excited to get my first Commodore if it weren't for Tron. And after that, it's a domino effect. On today's show, we're going to talk about Tron. We'll talk about the movie itself, its pre-production, production, the cast, we'll touch on the plot. We'll talk about Tron outside of the movies. We'll talk a little bit about Tron Legacy, the sequel that's about to come out. And we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. We have a lot of information to cover today. So without further ado, let's start the show. This is the story of two worlds, and the beings that inhabit them. One of them is our world, the one we can see and feel. The world of the users, it lies on our side of the video screen. The other, an electronic micro-civilization, lives and breathes just beyond our grasp. This is the world of the programs, because we, the users, have created this new world. Part of us lives there too, on the other side of the screen. That is the alternate, original opening to Tron that spelled out the concept of the film in text. For those not familiar, Tron is an American science fiction film produced by Walt Disney Productions and Lisberger Studios that came out in 1982. It was directed by Steven Lisberger, and even if you haven't seen it, you probably know that it has a very distinct visual style that tries to capture what it would be like to be inside a computer. The idea of Tron started in the 70s in the head of Steven Lisberger, who had his own studio. And he looked at a simple reel from a computer firm called Magi and was mesmerized by this computer animation. It was also at this point that he saw the video game Pong for the first time. At this point, according to Lisberger, he realized that there were these techniques that would be very suitable for bringing video games and computer visuals onto the big screen. And at that moment, the whole concept flashed across his mind. At that point, Lisberger pulled up 10 stakes and moved Lisberger Studios to the West Coast and set up an animation studio to develop Tron. They had been working on a television special, which is most excellent, called Animal Olympics. It was a favorite of me and my friends growing up, and they borrowed against the anticipated profits of that to finance Tron. At that point, Tron was going to be a mostly animated film with live-action sequence sort of acting as bookends and the rest would all be computer-generated visuals and backlit animation. The movie turned out to be a very expensive proposition, and so he decided to approach computer companies so that it could be an independent film away from the studios, but he had very little success with them, until he met with 
one company, Information International, Inc. It's at this point that the idea of the movie morphed from being completely computer-generated to having live-action photography with backlit animation so that the two could be integrated together. They had spent $300,000 developing Tron and had secured between 4 and $5 million in backing, but were still at a standstill. So Lisberger took the storyboards and sample computer-generated films to a whole bunch of different studios, all of whom turned him down. Then they decided that maybe they should take it to Disney. In the 70s and early 80s, Disney was not what it was and not what it is now. So they were looking to take a chance. But Disney was nervous because the film was going to take 10 to $12 million. And we're looking at a first-time director here who was using techniques that had not been created yet, which actually seems like something early Disney would have been quite comfortable with. But that was 50 years earlier. The studio agreed to finance a test reel that would involve a combo of live-action footage with backlit animation and computer-generated visuals. When this was done, it impressed the executives at Disney, and the film got backing. They rewrote the script and re-storyboarded it with the studio's input. There was a problem with Disney culture. Disney never hired from the outside. Everything was done internally. So here were these guys coming in with computers, trying to rethink how animation was done. Needless to say, people inside Disney, who were traditional animators, were none too happy about that. As I mentioned, Tron has a very specific look, and the art direction of the film was due to three designers who were brought in to create the look of this computer world. You had French comic artist Jean Girard, who is better known as Mobius, who was the main set and costume designer. The vehicles in the movie were done by Sid Mead, who also worked on Blade Runner. And Peter Lloyd, who was a commercial artist, designed the environments of the movie. It's amazing that the film is as cohesive as it is, but it really works out well with these three artists bringing all their talents together to create the computer animation sequences of Tron. And remember, there are only 15 minutes of CGI in the entire film. They turned to four computer graphic firms. Information International, which was in Culver City, California. Magi of Elmsford, New York. Magi, as I mentioned, was the one that Lisberger had seen earlier that inspired him. Robert Abel and Associates. And Digital Effects. If you ever get a chance to watch documentaries about the making of Tron, it is really interesting to see how these different companies approached computer animation and the difficulties of coming up with that 15 to 20 minutes of computer-generated imagery that's in the film. Remember, computers they had to work with had only 2 megabytes of memory, with a disk capacity of 330 megabytes. Of course, this puts severe limitations on what they could do, and... According to the movie's computer effects supervisor, Richard Taylor, he would often tell them to, when in doubt, black it out, which is why the film has a very dark, dark look to it. Now, most of the movie itself is actually created using more traditional techniques and a process called backlit animation. In that process, scenes inside the computer world are filmed in black and white on an entirely black set. And those are printed on large format, high contrast film. Then they are colorized with photographic and rotoscoping techniques to give them that Tron-y feel. This process required tons of sheet film and more work than what was expected in conventional cell animated features. Due to the difficulty and cost involved in this, Tron is the only feature film to ever use this process. Over 500 people were involved in post-production on the film.
there's often a little bit of confusion about the coloring in the movie because in the original script, good programs were to be colored yellow and evil programs, the ones that are loyal to Sark and the MCP, would be colored blue. Now, partway into production, this coloring scheme was changed. So blue became good and red became evil. But some scenes had already been produced using the original coloring scheme. Clue, who drives a tank, has yellow circuit lines and all of Sark's tank commanders are blue. And yet sometimes they appear green. And the famous light cycle sequence shows the heroes driving yellow, orange, and red cycles while Sark's troops drive blue. Tron was a technological wonder, way ahead of its time. It also happened to be way ahead of the power grid of the city of Burbank, where they were filming it. They used so much electricity during the making of the film that they actually blew a part of the grid. The future requires a lot of electricity, people. And now a message from our sponsor, Candy. Delicious, full of energy, Candy. that candy. So we'll talk a little bit about plot of Tron. If you have no intention of seeing the original movie, it can be difficult to get your hands on it nowadays. Maybe this will help you before you go see Tron Legacy. Tron is about a young programmer, very gifted, from the state of New Jersey, according to one of the scripts, named Kevin Flynn. He's played by Jeff Bridges. And he was once an employee of a company called Encom and developed several video games after hours there to start his own company. Unbeknownst to him, a fellow employee, Ed Dillinger, played by David Warner, took his code and presented it as his own, eventually getting himself promoted to become the CEO of the company. Flynn gets terminated and starts his own video game arcade. At this point, he tries to hack into the NCOM mainframe to find evidence of the theft. But at that point, the Master Control Program, MCP, which is an artificial intelligence software program that controls the mainframe, blocks his attempt. We also learn at the time that Dillinger is allowing the MCP to lock down the mainframe and even blocking a friend of Flynn's, Alan Bradley's program, Tron, which would monitor communication between the MCP and the outside world. So Bradley and a co-worker, Dr. Laura Baines, go to Flynn and warn him that Dillinger has learned of his hacking and is attempting to lock down the mainframe. Flynn convinces Bradley to bring him into the laser lab of NCOM, where tests are being done to digitize real objects as computer code. Flynn accesses the mainframe. The MCP is monitoring him. The MCP hits him with one of the digitizing lasers and sends him into the NCOM mainframe. That NCOM laser bay is a real place. It was actually the target bay for the 20-beam Shiva solid-state laser facility at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab. It's used for nuclear fusion research and was capable of delivering 28 trillion watts of power. Flynn appears in this mainframe world. It's confused, but comes to understand the nature of the digital world and finds that programs on the NCOM mainframe are represented by human-like figures who believe their users to be mythical, godlike entities. But instead of doing their duty, they're all being forced by the MCP 
and its tight controls to play games, with losers being derezzed or erased. These games are monitored by the control program of the MCP, Sark, who is played by David Warner. Flynn is mistaken as a program and put in a holding cell where he meets Tron, who's played by Boxleitner. Tron is seeking to gain access to an I.O. tower to get instructions from his user, but since the mainframe is locked down, he can't get to it. This, of course, leads to a friendship and an escape where Tron and Flynn confront the MCP, and eventually Flynn escapes and is reconstructed in the laser lab, because that's how lasers work. At the end, Flynn is shown to be the new NCOM CEO. Happy ending. A little bit about the cast of the movie. Jeff Bridges plays Kevin Flynn and Clue, one of his programs in the game. A fun little fact, one that's often talked about, Jeff Bridges' outfit has a bit of a toga area, sort of covering up areas, because his unitard was a bit bulging at parts that were not family-friendly enough. So they were forced to cover it up. Fun fact. And one I think Jeff Bridges loves to talk about. Of course, Jeff Bridges has been in a ton of things. The Big Lebowski, he's going to be in True Grit soon, and he's going to be in the new Tron Legacy. Bruce Boxleitner played Alan Bradley and Tron. Bruce Boxleitner has had an incredible career, especially on television, working in Bring Him Back Alive, Scarecrow and Mrs. King, and of course Babylon 5. He will also reappear in Tron Legacy. Steven Lisberger said in interviews that he had thought the word Tron came from the word electronic and liked it, but later on he did find out that Tron is a command in basic programming, meaning trace on, which turned out to be a very happy coincidence. David Warner, great British actor, played Ed Dillinger, Sark, and the Master Control Program. Fun little fact, person who was up for the role of Sark, Peter O'Toole. Cindy Morgan played Dr. Laura Baines and Yori. Now, according to Tron concept artist Sid Mead, the casting of the Laura part was anything but scientific. They saw lots of different women. Deborah Harry, Blondie, was one of the people considered for the role. They couldn't decide, so then as a joke, they suggested that they pick the first actress that could spell the word chrysanthemum. Cindy Morgan, who at this point was probably best known as Lacey Underall in Caddyshack, I guess turned out to be the best speller because she got the role. Barnard Hughes played Dr. Walter Gibbs. He passed away in 2006 at the age of 90. On screen, he appeared in a lot of great stuff. Midnight Cowboy, Hamlet, The Lost Boys, Doc Hollywood. Dan Shore played Ram. Shore's acting credits include Air Force One and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. He was also on Star Trek The Next Generation and Star Trek Voyager. Peter Jurassic played Krom. Jurassic would work in other things, but probably best known for his work on Babylon 5 and in Hill Street Blues. There's a brief cameo by everyone's favorite dot eater, Pac-Man, who makes a graphical and audible cameo on Sark's control panel just after the light cycles escape the game grid. You can find screenshots of it all over the web. The music for Tron is stirring, and the soundtrack for Tron was written by Wendy Carlos, who was a pioneer electronic musician, probably best known for her album Switched on Bach, and for her work on A Clockwork Orange and The Shining, and the soundtrack, which is a collaboration between Carlos and Anna Marie Franklin, is a mix of analog Moog synthesizer and Krumar's GDS digital synthesizer. 
I don't know much about music, but it does sound really cool. And there's also non-electronic pieces performed by a little band called the London Philharmonic Orchestra. I don't know, never heard of them. Two additional musical tracks were provided by the band Journey after the British band Supertramp pulled out of the project. Now, the score for the film had been unavailable on CD for many years, and this was due to the severe degradation of the analog master tapes that were put together. But by the time of the film's 20th anniversary, they had developed techniques which allowed the tapes to be temporarily restored and made playable just for digital remastering so that we have the Tron soundtrack once again. So a soundtrack about a movie about technology saved by technology. Hooray! The computer, an extension of the human intellect. The NCOM 511, center of the most calculating intelligence on Earth. Programmed by master control to survive by all means. Soon, the ultimate tool will become the ultimate enemy. I still do not understand why you want to break into the system. Because, man, somewhere in one of these memories is the evidence. Hey, 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 it's the big master control program everybody's been talking about. Kevin Flynn, computer genius. Taken prisoner and held captive within the digital world of the computer itself. Trapped inside an electronic arena where love and escape do not compute. So Tron was released in July of 1982 in over a thousand theaters, and on its opening weekend made $4.8 million. It would go on to make $33 million in North America, which is pretty good, considering it had a $17 million budget. Of course, at this point, Star Wars had come out and Empire Strikes Back, so Disney was anticipating huge returns on merchandise at that point. I think I read once that they were thinking hundreds of millions of dollars in merchandise, so their expectations were way up here. For those who cannot see me, my hand is way above my head, and instead they should have been down here, and now I've lowered my hand about three quarters down. If they had, they would be quite happy that the film was profitable right off the bat. 
was a technical masterpiece, but the year it was released, the Motion Picture Academy refused to nominate it for Best Special Effects because they said that effects in the movie were cheats because they had used computers. The film did, however, earn Oscar nods for Best Costume Design and Best Sound due to the poor return at the box office of Tron and its predecessor, The Black Hole, which I happen to think is a very underrated film. Disney Studios wouldn't make another live subject film for 10 years. made them very gun-shy. But this movie inspired a lot of people, including one of the saviors of Disney, John Lasseter, who's head of Pixar and Disney's animation group now, who has stated that the film helped him see the potential of computer-generated imagery in the production of animated films. Now, while the film didn't live up to expectations and didn't sell a lot of merchandise, one thing that did very well was the arcade video game, which would eventually go on to outgross the film. In 1982, Midway Games released the Tron arcade game, which consisted of four mini-games based on scenes from within the movie. In 83, they released Discs of Tron, which was a sequel that focused on disc combat. For the Intellivision, Mattel would release three separate Tron games, Tron Deadly Discs, Tron Mazatron, and Tron Solar Sailor. Deadly Discs would later be ported to the Atari VCS, which was cool. What was really sad is that Space Paranoids, which was one of Kevin Flynn's fictitious games, was going to be turned into a video game for the Atari, but due to the video game crash, the idea for that was scrapped. Now, while Space Paranoids was never made by Atari back then, there is a version of it out there for Windows, and it has been popularized greatly because of the new Tron Legacy movie coming out. In 2003, Tron 2.0 was a PC game released for Windows. It was a first-person shooter done in the Tron style, and in it, the player takes the role of Alan Bradley's son, Jet, who has been pulled into the computer world to fight a virus. They also released a separate version of the game called Tron 2.0 Killer App for the Xbox. They would also release a GBA version of the game, which is a completely different game as well. Tron would leak into the Disney's Kingdom Hearts franchise in Kingdom Hearts 2. There's a world named Space Paranoids, after one of Flynn's games, that is set in the world of Tron. When Disney was doing Virtual Magic Kingdom, there was a room based on Tron, which was really cool. And multiple Tron items, and and there were multiple suits and Tron furniture. Sadly, VMK closed on May 21st, 2008, much to the chagrin of the fans of it. In 2009, at Comic-Con, real-life space paranoids machines were set up for people to play, and they were placed in a recreation of Flynn's Arcade near the convention center. So Tron Legacy is coming out. Might as well talk a little bit about where Tron is going Video game-wise, they just released a new Tron Evolution, and I've heard it has a couple of problems, but I've watched some of the videos, and i got to admit, I'm a little interested, even though I usually don't play video games like that. They make me dizzy. Disney did not completely abandon Tron. From 1982 to 1985, Disneyland's People Mover attraction had a World of Tron section as you pass through it. Warning, you have invaded the electronic realm of the master computer program. Prepare for the game grid of Tron. You have escaped Tron's game grid for now, users. But take heed, next time you may not fare so well. In 2010, the Epcot monorail at Walt Disney World was wrapped in advertisements featuring blue and yellow light cycles on either side. 
everybody called it the Trona Rail. And in Disney's California Adventure in Anaheim, they have a whole Tron area set up for Tron Legacy called Electronica, which I would love to see. So if you're out there, check that out before Tron Legacy goes away. While Tron has creeped into real life in video games, it also made it into print. A novelization of Tron was released in 1982, written by Brian Daly. It included eight pages of color photographs from the movie. Also that year, Disney released a book called The Art of Tron, which talked all about the pre-production and post-production of the movie. Starting in 2000, there have been a couple of comics, especially once Tron 2.0 came out. And even now for Tron Legacy, they're releasing all sorts of tie-ins in the comic book world. So if you're a comic reader, you're getting a little extra Tron. Now I think there's a lost opportunity here because Tron, which was released on DVD special edition earlier in this decade, was not re-released for the release of Tron Legacy, which is really surprising to me. So right now, most people can only get Tron through the secondary market, and I imagine maybe when Tron Legacy comes out, there'll be a Blu-ray release or something, because people who want to see Tron right now are having a very difficult time doing so. So if you see a copy of Tron at a store, do pick it up if you can. Otherwise, you can expect to pay upwards of 50 to $70 for it in place. It's crazy. Tron Legacy comes out next week. I'm very excited for that. Talk of the movie started in 2005, and in 2008, we heard about Tron 2, with the O being replaced by a 2, which would be the next chapter, and it's gone through many iterations since then. But it's finally going to happen. They've had great web tie-ins and a great new toy line that's out at most stores. Load up on those. They're also going to release a television series on Disney XD, which will premiere in fall of 2011 called Tron Uprising. I think it's going to be a 10-part miniseries. We'll see how that turns out. Tron is one of those movies that when I see it with people, they either love it instantly or just stare at me wondering why I love it so much. It's just one of those things to me. I spend so much time in front of a computer that I can't help but visualize the world that's inside of it. And Tron is the closest that I've ever gotten to the vision that is in my head. So if you haven't seen Tron, go check out Tron Legacy. I'm sure it'll at least be an action extravaganza. And if you got kids, take them to see it. Because the world could always use more computer folk in it. And if you're lucky, you just might inspire somebody. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at facebook.com slash retroist and twitter.com slash retroist. A lot of the music you hear in the show is put together by Peachy. If you have some musical needs or want to talk about music, why not email Peachy at peachy at retroist.com. The music you're hearing here at the end of the show is by 8-Bit Weapon. 8-Bit Weapon does amazing 8-Bit music. You can find out more information about 8-Bit Weapon at 8bitweapon.com. Well, users, thank you for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend.
Hey, hey, it's the big master control button. I'm warning you. You're entering a big arrow. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.